Congratulations! You found it! The most inappropriate book club you never knew you were missing! Starring the original book divas Martha Steele and Vonnie Golden, and also featuring Megan Runyon, YA superfan, Keith Steigert, Uber Reader and Romance Junkie, Pat Greiner, she has the head of an English major and the heart of a sci-fi nerd. These people are passionate about books. Maybe a little too passionate. Plotting world domination one book at a time, they are three book girls. I saw the sweetest and most unexpected commercial. It was the Spanish commercial for a whiskey. It's called, what, J&B Whiskey? Have you guys heard of this commercial? No. No? Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, I have, but I haven't watched it. But I saw it pop up and everybody was talking about it. It's amazing. It's like this little Spanish village kind of thing. And this old man, like in his like 70s, first he starts and he steals a lipstick from his wife's purse and he kind (laughs) of hides it away. And he tries to put it on and it's awful. So, and he's all mad at himself. And then he, he keeps going to different like makeup stores and people give him weird looks. And he's like looking at posters and looking at all this stuff. And one by one, he adds little things to this little bag and he hides it in his bathroom, like way up high. And then it goes to, I think it's supposed to be Christmas dinner. All his family are there and in walks his grandson who's 26 and they like put his name and he, he looks kind of like down and kind of depressed. The old man takes him into the bathroom and he has learned to apply makeup so he could put it on his son who is transgender. Oh my God. And that's how the son then comes out to dinner. The son comes out to dinner with this awesome makeup job and that's how he announces it. And the whole family is all sweet and hugs him and he's crying and he's oh so, my and then God. Like, Anna. I am about to freaking cry. You just yeah. made, you so just amazing. made every chill bump on my whole body poke out. That is so that awesome. Is, that's it great. is so unlike anything I ever imagined that I would see. And it is so cool. Um, has anyone finished or started watching the Megan and Harry documentary? <laughs> no, nope. you're the only person that gives two shits about that stuff. Sorry, that's not true. There are so many. No, I mean amongst none of us. I mean amongst, amongst us, this group, we have zero yeah. fucks to give about the royal family. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't watched the second part yet, but I've seen like clips of it, and I saw like I guess there's a clip where. He gets a, like him and Megan are sitting there talking and he gets like a text from William, like an angry text. And he like, doesn't really tell you what it says, but like they have a conversation about it or whatever. And somebody's like, they're like, really going to tell us you got a mean text from your brother, but then you're not going to read it to us. Like shit, the Kardashians read us their text messages all the time. I like the people who point out that they've made this entire Netflix documentary and invited all the photographers into their life and everything to talk about how much their privacy has been invaded. Right. (laughs) See, that right there explains the reason I will not be watching the show. I think a lot of people are, like, hate watching it, (laughs) which is a real thing. Like, I'm watching it just because I'm intrigued to see what they're going to say. You're just interested in the royal family. Admit it. Well, I know I am, but I also then like hearing all the people who, like, fact check it and are like, that's not what fucking happened. (laughs) Like, or when they contradict themselves between the Oprah interview and the Netflix interview, that's my favorite. Mm-hmm. Megan, do you have an elf on the shelf? I do. <laughs> does your mommy come over and hide him every morning for you? Sure does. 
She brought me a Harry Potter Lego set yesterday. Oh, Jesus fucking Christ, Megan. <laughs> so I'm building it as we chat. I'm dying hey, over here. I'm absolutely fucking dying. The perks of being an dying. only child. The perks <laughs> of being an only child and your parents living down the street is you get an elf on the shelf. She brings me little things like bath bombs or... The Lego set was really an afterthought because we bought some for Toys for Tots. And I was like, oh, that one's cute. And Mom's like, yeah, okay, your elf will bring you that one day. <laughs> oh, damn, Megan. Yeah. She did bring me a snow shovel because I broke mine and all the ice I shoveled last year. <laughs> Which, you know, that was a necessity. <laughs> you know, it's on. funny because I keep seeing people on TikTok and they're like all upset. And they're like 30 years old and they're like... Mom, where's my advent calendar? Mom, where's my elf on the shelf gift? And and then their parents are like, um, you're 30. And they're like, so? So, <laughs> so the next time I see one, I'm going to be like, I know somebody who's in her 30s and she her mother still does her elf on the shelf. I think yep. your mom just sucks. <laughs> I'm obviously failing as a parent because not only am I not doing that, but I didn't do it in the first place. Well, when, oh, when so the elf on the shelf brought you gifts, I thought they just spied on you. They <laughs> do. They do a little bit of both. It depends on your elf. It depends on your mom is what it comes down to. If your mom um, just wants to spoil the living crap out of you, then you're going to get a yep. lot of presents. Yeah, there are a lot so, of people who get gifts. What's funny about this whole elf on the shelf thing is, so when my dad worked for one of the shoe companies he worked for, they had these elves that they decorated with for Christmas, like in the display windows and everything. So we've had these elves all over our house since I was a child because that company went out of business. And so, of course, they divvied up like all the stuff, like extra stuff when they were moving out. And so we had these elves and I used to move them around the house all Christmas and like, and then elf on the shelf came out and I was like, we had elf on the shelf. <laughs> like we, we didn't do anything like with them really but they were all over the house so it was so i still hang those up around the house because they've i've had them forever but it was funny when i first saw elf on the shelf because i was it like before it was cool yeah our elves are not are a little more creepy because they're like hand-painted faces and they look kind of <laughs> maniacal at times but oh they kind of fit in with the maniacal elves in my book this week oh hmm. martha found a holiday book i or a did book. it's probably a christmas miracle <laughs> There's, you know, just lots. Martha found a winter book. Megan got Taylor Swift tickets. There's just lots of Christmas miracles happening this week. <laughs> I got the drunk out of the theater last night without anything going wrong. Whoa! <laughs> there was a drunk in the theater. Oh well, when your when your theater is not in the best part of town. Oh God, that's right. I forgot. It is not the first time. It was during a show a couple of years back. Somebody actually just wandered in off the street and wandered out onto stage, and. <laughs> And luckily, the director just took him by the arm and walked him back out again. But ever since that happened, we locked the door to the lobby now when the show starts. Oh. Fair. We had just locked the door. The door rattles. There was a single ticket for a guy on my reservation list who hadn't shown up. So I look out. There's the guy standing out there. So I open the door, and he walks in. I go, are you Andrew? And he goes, no, I'm Al. <laughs> okay. okay and pretty quickly i noticed that the fumes coming off al are, could get anybody drunk in a couple of minutes and at this point red flags are starting to go off and uh, <laughs> then i was like i need to get this guy out of here and uh, he came around and 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 they puts his arms out like he wants to hug me so i just grabbed one of his hands with both hands and shook it and said merry christmas and turned around Merry Christmas! Now fuck off. <laughs> well played, Pat. Well played. 
we never had to deal with drunks when I was in Culver at the theater, but we definitely had like the kid, the, especially in the summer, they figured out really quickly that there was like tunnels under the theater and, um, that they could, you know, think they were real sneaky as teenagers and be like, I'm going to go run around and cause trouble. And they would not realize that some of the doors slammed and you could hear them through the air vent. And so we definitely chased horny teenagers through the tunnels because (laughs) Alex and I would be sitting there like hanging out while the movies were running for the other teenagers. And we would just hear this smack and we'd be like, oh shit. And have to like go running down. Like we'd be like, we know these tunnels better than you a lot. So you should probably not. Cause we always knew that door slammed. So if we were like going through the tunnels, we never, we would. I was going to say you knew a lot about the tunnels cause you were horny teenagers. Perhaps? No, but because well, the, the tunnels connect. No, uh-huh. the tunnels connected like the main part of the theater to the costume shop. The costume shop was at the end of one of the tunnels, and so that was the easiest way to get to the top. Okay, to the right. okay good. whatever. I know. <laughs> Martha <laughs> would prefer if you were a horny teenager. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint you. Yeah. Our theater used to be a bar before we bought the building. Oh, you know what? So I, I was gonna. I was I gonna wonder, mention like, that. Does somebody just? go forget that it's been a theater for 22 years now and wander it. Well, they could, I guess. That's what yeah. Alzheimer's does, especially you know, if you're a drunk patient with Alzheimer's. I, I suppose you would you know, go back to the same places you remember. Of course. But he knew where he was because he said he was at the theater. Well, he knew because I let him in. Yeah, he, so he, but he clearly didn't want to see the show. Yeah. yeah. No, he, clearly, he was not clearly. in that. I think he was, maybe he was just looking for someplace warm. Who knows? Yeah. And I threw him back out in the cold. Oh, you're so, such a heartless yeah. bitch. You bet. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's definitely officially winter here in Oklahoma. It is so cold, and it's supposed to be cold. Mm-hmm. So it's only supposed to be in the teens here this week of Christmas. It's supposed to be bitterly cold. I'm not excited. Single digits. But at least it's not going to snow. That's true. We had a huge ice storm here, like Wednesday night through Friday morning, and everything mm. was shut down, like doctors, the schools. My kid had a play, and that was canceled. It was nice because, I mean, I didn't have to go out. I mean, everybody's stuff was canceled, but it was crazy. I'm not a big fan of road closures and whatnot. It's a pain in the ass. And Mother, well, this- Mother Nature oh. is, is responsible well, this time two years ago, we had a snow little snow apocalypse because I was on my time hop and it was like showing me st- working from home, like sitting, trying to stay warm. I don't remember, but yeah. we Every once in a while, we get some really cold weather. Apparently, England and the UK is freezing. Like, and their heating is so expensive. People don't want to turn their heat all the way up. I've seen a couple people on TikTok talking about how they're sleeping in like two and three sweatshirts and they're like, it's like a hot mess. Like it's bad. It's they're in, they're in trouble over there. Um, the heat is expensive here. And they just said on the news that gas prices are going up again, natural gas prices. Yep. And they've already raised them twice this year. Yep. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yes. My thermometer said on 60 and it's not moving. You're, you're a sadist. That's cold. My mom will be wearing two sweaters when she comes to Christmas. <laughs> I would be wearing two sweaters in your house. My house is at like 71 right now and I'm cold. I mean, we build a fire of if it's 66. 
or colder. But I mean, Vonnie's not only set on 60, but she's sitting there in just a t-shirt. I would have a sweater on at least. <laughs> and she well, comes over, a sweater on. And she comes Until. over to my house and she's like, it's so fucking hot in here. It is. It's hot in your house all the time. No, it's perfect in Martha's house. No. I think I've walked into hell when I walked into Martha's house. <laughs> no, it's perfectly cozy. It's like, uh, Martha, your hair hides the horns so well. Because, <laughs> this has to be the devil's lair. It's so hot. <laughs> I had to have special headphones made to accommodate my horns. <laughs> well... My mom's house is even hotter than Martha's house is. So you can just imagine when I go in there, like I change into a tank top and shorty shorts before I go to her Jesus, house. Bonnie's the fucking ice queen. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You like should, you Mrs. Frost. You what? You should live in Wyoming. <laughs> <laughs> Probably perfect for you. I was perfectly happy with our non-heated house in New York. Let me tell you, in upper state New York. You're a sadist. So cold. It's not that cold. I can't help it. You're a wuss. Yes. Yes, I am when I it comes to cold. Com- you're a completely... <laughs> I learned from, from my book this week that I did not know was that in Dante's Nine Levels of Hell from the Inferno, the very lowest level of hell is not fire. It's ice. That tracks. Oh, that I did worst, not know that. The but... worst punishment is freezing, not burning, See? according to Dante. I'd be okay with that. But yeah. you are. You are freezing. <laughs> so you're in the ninth level of hell. We all just need a little bit of extra Christmas cheer. Most of Christmas is wrapped up and done by now. This is Christmas night now. Well, some people yeah. celebrate late. We're going to celebrate late. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, so are we, as a matter of fact. We probably won't celebrate Christmas until New Year's Eve this year. So, so see? Yeah. Yep, you're right. Christmas is not just about the day. Christmas is just of when the family gets together. Yep. It's the Christmas spirit all year long. Hanukkah, however, is far over because it started like a week ago. What day did it actually start? Like the 19th? I think so. The 18th? Yes, something like that. Hanukkah celebrations have probably long concluded. <sighs> I know what I uh, won't miss about the holiday season is the freaking crazy drivers that are on the street all the time i swear to god in december people forget how to drive and i know i bitch about this every year but every year it just pisses me off yep every year every year you bitch about the shitty drivers that are making your holiday spirit dimmer well it's especially like in store parking lots like people don't understand you have to drive on one side or the other not down the middle where other people can't go. It's two lanes, like the road. Bonnie's old man is coming out. The fun thing about you. holiday parking lots is that they're generally snowy, which means all the lines are covered over and everybody makes up their own rules. about. Now you're talking in Wyoming lingo. We don't, we don't have those issues very often. But you're absolutely <laughs> right, Pat. There's no blueprint. When the yeah, parking lots are covered says, over, the first I'm person... 
start my line over here. Yep, the first person who gets there decides where the parking begins. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. We used to do that in Ohio. We'd be like, well, we all are going to be in a straight row. We just might not actually be in a spot. Yep, exactly. <laughs> well, in Oklahoma, it's just wherever the snow drifts stop. Yeah. True. When it snows here and I go to work and I park, I just have to find the one with the least amount of snow in the parking spot. And you only pull in as far as you can because, I mean, they don't plow any of the parking lots or anything. So you pull in as far as the drift will let you, and that's it. I'm feeling like we should spread a little holiday cheer for all to hear now. What do you think? No. Yes. No. 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 Does that mean singing? Because I'm out. (laughs) What'd you say, Pat? I said, my book will not spread holiday cheer. Well, mine will if you have a very black heart. (laughs) Mine is only for black-hearted holiday lovers. Well, I have a, a very, very Christmas book. Well, then maybe you should go first since we should always start on a happy note. Oh, you mean me go first for a change? Why not? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's a a new thing. It's a new thing we're trying out, Bonnie. We thought we'd start off the new year with a new trend. (laughs) And the year with a new trend? Yes. So the book that I did this week is called Mr. Dickens and His Carol by Samantha Silva. And if you don't get this from the title, it's about Charles Dickens and him writing The Christmas Carol. First, I want to point out that this is historical fiction, not nonfiction. So I don't know. I did not look up what parts of this book was accurate and what isn't. I know that parts of his life is accurate. The actual story about him writing The Christmas Carol might not be 100% accurate. So nobody like, you know, call me out and get mad or anything about it because they're like, oh, it's not true. Geez, taking all our Christmas fun away. So you can bitch about me behind my back. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Go ahead. You can still do it. (laughs) This book starts out with Charles Dickens not really feeling very much in the Christmas spirit. At the time, he was writing a series that came out monthly in a magazine. Pickwick Papers. There we go. Yes. And it wasn't doing very hot. And his publishers were on his back about, you know, it's not doing very good. And they decided they wanted him to write a Christmas book. They just told him this. It's November. They want it to them a week before Christmas so that he can do a Christmas Eve reading of his Christmas book. So he doesn't have very much time to write it. And also at this time, he's got five kids. All of them are all about what they're going to get for Christmas. His wife's planning this lavish party and spending all of this money, and he's just has family coming out of the woodwork and they all want money and all the charities are coming and wanting donations. And he's just feeling all of this financial pressure. And he tells his publishers, no, I'm not writing a Christmas book. And they basically told him, well, your Pickwick papers aren't doing that well. And if you don't write this book, we're going to deduct the amount out of your salary. And it was a pretty hefty amount. So he's also worried about, crap, what am I going to do without all this extra money, yada, yada. Just like anyone does when they're stressed about money, he kind of takes it out on his family and he gets pretty short with his wife and his wife gets pissed and says, I'm taking the kids to Scotland for Christmas. You can do whatever you want to do. So I feel like that's not a punishment, but whatever. Right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, he loves his family. I mean, he loves his kids. At first he was 
happy. Cause like what you said, Keith, it's not really a punishment to have, you know, some peace and quiet, but then he gets to missing him and he has to write this book and he has absolutely no motivation. So he kind of goes back to where he began to write. There's like a theater that he used to work at and like a boarding house that he used to stay at. And he just kind of goes to that end of town to just get some inspiration. And he meets this woman named Evelyn. It's not like a romantic thing or anything else even though he thinks that she's, you know, highly beautiful and an angel in disguise, blah, blah, blah. But she's very straightforward and he just uses her as his muse to get ideas to write this Christmas book. While he's doing this, he kind of takes a look back at his life and his past. Throughout the book, kind of get little hints of different inspirations that he got for parts of the book, The Christmas Carol. One of the things that Evelyn does for him is helps him come up with a disguise so people don't recognize him because he's popular. He's written a lot of books. People know who he is and he wants to go unbothered. So they come up with this old man outfit, which surprisingly enough is a lot like his Ebenezer character in The Christmas Carol. So a couple weeks go by and he's slowly writing his book. He has inspiration and his publishers are after him to give them some pages to read and everything else. And he doesn't want to give it to him because it's not finished. You know, it's kind of like he has the middle of the book done, but he hasn't done the beginning or the end and they kind of get after him. And then they question his friendship with this Evelyn chick that he's been hanging out with. And they don't want him to hang out with her because they think that she's a spy. Because apparently at this time, there's a lot of like plagiarism. People take a lot of parts of his books and rewrite them and try to claim them for themselves. So they want to kind of avoid that. And so they kind of put this bad idea in his head about this woman. And so he kind of starts to investigate her. And so he goes to the theater where she's supposed to be working and he finds out that she hasn't worked there in a year. So then you kind of get an idea like, who is this woman? What's going on there? What's her story? I don't want to give too much away, but things happen. There's a big upset about his book that he had written after it's already done. And you find out that Evelyn isn't quite what she is supposed to be. But of course, you know, it's a Christmas book. So it ends on a happy note. And everything is very much tied with a Christmas bow at the end. And it just kind of gave me the same kind of feeling that the Christmas Carol did. There's this buildup and there's buildup and you're like, there's no way this is going to end up being a good story. And then all of a sudden it turns around and it's beautiful. This book is written kind of like in old English language. You have to concentrate a little bit when you read it. Well, I mean, have you guys read any Charles Dickens books? Yes. Or anything? Yeah. Okay, you know how it's written almost like poetic? Like the way that they talk is very different than we do now? Mm -hmm. Well, this is how this book is written. So it's a good thing that we weren't busy at work when I'm trying to read this. (laughs) Because I had to rewind and listen a few times because I kind of got lost in the words. But it's, it's a beautiful book. I loved the story. I don't care if it's true or not which I'm pretty sure it's not 100% true. There's pieces of it that are the same as Charles Dickens' life, which that's good enough for me because I liked it. It really gives you a Christmas feel at the end, and I like that. It was very poignant. (laughs) 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 Well, it is Christmas. But it's also a little dark in places, too. I mean, this is 
1843-1842 London. There's a lot of poor people, but yeah, it was really good. I enjoyed it. And I think if anyone wants a Christmas read, this would be a great one. It wasn't too long. I did the audio and it was only seven hours. So, I mean, I read it in two days. And that again is called Mr. Dickens and His Christmas Carol by Samantha Silva. I would recommend it. I think A Christmas Carol must be one of the stories that's been remade or made into movies more often than anything else. There are so many versions out, out so, there. Yeah. Well, what my do you think? personal favorite. Scrooge McDuck, because that's my favorite. My favorite's the Mickey Mouse one. <laughs> Muppet Mickey Family Mouse. Christmas one. The Muppet <laughs> Christmas Carol. That's the best nah, one. I like the old black and white with the ghosts. I don't remember what yeah. the uh, what the original movie. Oh, yeah, those are good. My favorite's Patrick Stewart's One Man Show. Of course it would be Patrick Stewart. <laughs> that, <laughs> that bald, sexy dude. Yeah. Um, who is officially on TikTok now, and I think I was, he may actually be so reading A Christmas Carol. He oh. is. I was just going to say that. When I was watching TikTok today, Patrick Stewart came on reading The Christmas Carol. I thought that was just perfect. Yep. <laughs> he was like, I'm here now. I might as well read you a Christmas carol. Oh, <laughs> uh, Keith, can you beat that? Well, I, I have a sort of smutty Christmas Ooh! book. <laughs> Bring it. The book I read is called Tis the Season for Revenge by Morgan Elizabeth. Our main character is Abby, and she has been dating Richard for four years and she is, she has bent over backwards. She's like this free spirit. She loves the color pink. She's a makeup artist. And he is this lawyer at this up and coming firm trying to make partner. So over the four years, she's kind of dulled down her sparkle. She doesn't wear pink anymore. She wears all sorts of boring stuff. She dyes her hair from blonde to dark brown because she just does all these things because he needs this perfect girlfriend on his arm that would impress the partners. Yes, very much blah. Richard really lives up to his nickname. He is a big old dick. Um, <laughs> but not the good kind. Not the good kind. So Halloween comes and she is dressed in a costume. She's just got bunny ears on and she's worn like a cute skirt. And I mean, she's tried to play it down, but it's a costume party. Well, she comes out, he doesn't even come to her door. Like he just texts her and says, come down to my car. She comes down and he takes one look at her and he's like, you know what? We're done. It's <laughs> over. And he sits there and tells her like, you're not good enough for me. All this crap, right? So immediately she invites her two best friends over and they get plastered. And while they're plastered, they come up with all these amazing things to do to get revenge on him. <laughs> good. Love it. <laughs> But one of the biggest things is that there's this huge company Christmas party. She has never been invited by her boyfriend to go because apparently she's not good enough to meet like all the people at the law firm. And this takes place in New York and it's in the rainbow room. And every year she asks, and this year he had finally relented and said, you can come. And she was all thinking she was going to get a marriage proposal and stuff. So She's sitting there with her friends and they're like, you know what would be awesome? You should like totally hook up with his boss. <laughs> and then you could go to the Christmas party with him. And then Richard would be like, what the heck? So 
the boss is on Tinder or I don't know, whatever the equivalent is in this book. She swipes right on him and they meet and they start dating. This book is, first off, it's so hysterical. They come up with the best things. I mean, besides dating the boss, who, by the way, Richard has always hated. Besides <laughs> that, I mean, they come up with the funniest things to do for revenge. She starts coming back into herself, which is awesome. And, oh, it's just so funny. And it is for Megan Blushes. And I don't Ooh. very often review things that get all the way up to four. But holy crap, these two are just, woo. But it was so much fun. It is really lighthearted. It is this great, you know, palate cleanser for if you've read something real heavy. I mean, as long as you're cool with some really explicit sex scenes. But um, oh my gosh, just seeing how much she transforms from this like person that she totally is not and realizing how much this asshole that she was dating has completely like, I mean, it's really bordering on abusive how bad their relationship was because he's just really awful to her. And she has no idea until she starts going back to the way she was. And I mean, she's dating this partner who is so much nicer than Richard ever was and is so much more accommodating to the way she actually is. It's just really fun. It is really smutty. But um, yeah, it was a great Christmas read. I would totally recommend it. My friend Allison actually told me that I had to read it and she was not wrong. So that was Tis the Season for Revenge by Morgan Elizabeth. Awesome. Let's go with Pat next. Okay. We're going to bring the room down. <laughs> Somehow I figured. Yeah. I went with the seasonal part of our theme. I thought rather than Christmas, a seasonal book, a wintry book. And so I pulled a book that I had heard about for years and wanted to read. I said, this is the perfect chance. The book is 100 years old this year. Came out wow. in 1922, and it's called The Worst Journey in the World. It does not exaggerate. It's by Apsley Cherry Garrard, who was one of the members of Robert Scott's Antarctic Expedition. Ah, uh, we're in expedition territory we, again. We're in Antarctica again. And I think before on this uh, podcast, I've said that Shackleton endured more than any human being probably could. Nope, these guys beat Shackleton out. Whoa. Oh, dang. The expedition, which was from 1910 to 1913, officially, I think it was the British Antarctic Expedition, but it's known as the Terra Nova Expedition because that was the name of their ship. And Robert Scott, a captain in the British Navy, was aiming to be the first person to reach the South Pole. Shackleton had tried a couple of years before, gotten part way, and couldn't get there. So taking what Shackleton had learned, Scott puts together this enormous expedition, which was aiming not only to reach the pole, but to accomplish a lot of scientific research on the way, on climate conditions, on magnetism, and on penguin eggs. Part of what they had been asked to do was to bring back eggs from the emperor penguins. The emperor penguins are hard to get to. Their eggs are laid in the depths of the Antarctic winter, which means if you wait until spring in Antarctica to try and get the eggs, they're already hatched. So part of this expedition was to march across the peninsula from where they had their base 
and get some penguin eggs and bring them back in the dead of the Antarctic winter. When it is completely dark, the sun does not come up for four months. Oh my God. And the temperatures are hitting minus 75. You're, How's that temperature for you, Vaughty? You're bumming <laughs> me out, man. Minus, I can't even wrap my head around what negative 75. Okay, I might have to wear a coat in that kind of weather. <laughs> Bonnie, I think you make a good Antarctic explorer. <laughs> there were only three of them who went on this particular short journey, short compared to actually getting to the South Pole. So the author, absolutely Cherry Garrard, who was the youngest member of the expedition, he and two other men set out to trek across 75 miles of Antarctic wilderness to the Emperor Penguin Breeding Ground and back. It took them between five and six weeks in total darkness, minus 75 degree temperatures, and they're working with equipment that's 1910 technology. I was going to say, there's, there's no modern conveniences at all. Nothing that we no. can identify as, as being helpful in that kind of, no hand warmers. No. They had a tent, they had reindeer fur sleeping bags, and they had a little camp stove. And of course, they had to carry enough food and enough oil for that camp stove for five weeks or more. So they've got a sledge, which like a dog sled kind of thing, but they didn't take the dogs. The dogs would not have survived at that temperature. So they're pulling it. They're in harness pulling this sledge across the snow and across the crevasses and falling into crevasses. And some of the things they endured at minus 75, if you touch metal for half a second with exposed skin, it's frostbitten. So they couldn't take their gloves off. When they would settle into the tents at night, they had to lash the tent shut with an elaborate lacing system to try and keep the wind out. But they had to negotiate that lacing system with big bulky fur mittens on because if you took them off, your hands would freeze. Damn. The thing that got me was when they described, because they would get blisters on their hands. The cold would make their, their hands blister and the blisters would run like the length of their fingers. Ow. And then, Okay, that's bad enough, but the liquid inside the blisters would freeze solid. Oh! Into nope, nope. Mm -mm. <laughs> it was brutal. They're sleeping bags because they would have to lace themselves into the bags so tight that there was barely a little air hole for them to breathe through. And so sweat, just exhalations, just the normal amount of humidity that's in your breath would condense inside their sleeping bags every night. And when they got out, then the sleeping bags would freeze solid because of the moisture left inside by their bodies. It took them an hour and a half every night just to work their way into these frozen solid sleeping bags. Nope, it, I'm out. I, I can hardly fathom the kind of dedication to scientific research that it takes to do that. That particular side journey is what Cherry Garrard refers to as the worst journey in the world. They almost did not get back to it because they got over there they built a stone igloo to stay in because they spent 10 days. They were planning to spend 10 days observing the penguins, except they had put up their tent over the entryway to this stone igloo. And a storm came up and ripped the tent away. And it was just gone. And without a tent, there's no way they could have gotten back home. But luckily, after the storm cleared, they found the tent half a mile away and it had not been damaged. It had just been ripped away by the wind and dropped. They truly did luck out on that. 
they got three penguin eggs was all they were able to get because it was so treacherous, the, uh, the terrain, to get down to the nesting area. They did it once and, and realized that they'd been lucky to survive that. So they could never revisit that rookery. They got their three penguin eggs. They got them back. Oh, my God. And the British museums and naturalists who had wanted them kind of went, oh, well, we had this theory about penguin eggs and the fact that the stages of embryonic development would recapitulate the stages of evolutionary development. Only we realize now that that's kind of wrong. So these eggs really don't do us much good oh! at all. Oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of the upbeat part because they survived that journey. <laughs> that's the upbeat so, part. God, yeah. you're creeping me out. The rest of the book is about the actual push to go to the South Pole, which no spoilers here, because I think if you know Antarctic history, you know this. They didn't survive. Scott's party died in that attempt. Just as their ship was cruising down to the Antarctic, they got a telegram from Roel Amundsen, who was the leading Norwegian polar explorer. Amundsen had told them he was going back to the North Pole again. After they left, he changed his mind and went south, sent them a telegram and said, yeah, I'm going south. So it had become a race as to whether the British or the Norwegians would get there first. Scott's party endured absolute hell, but they got there. And when they got there, they found a Norwegian flag and a note saying Amundsen had gotten there a month earlier. Oh! Once they found that Amundsen had beaten them to the pole, they turned around for the return journey. They had planned it pretty carefully. They had depoted food and supplies all along. Only for some reason, Scott was supposed to take a party of a total of four, himself and three others, to the pole. For some reason, he decided to take five, which meant that the supplies left for them on the way back were cutting it pretty fine. And the weather was very different. No one had ever been to the South Pole yet. I mean, they knew it was cold, but they didn't know how cold, how vicious the winds would be, how bad the surface would be. Snow down there is so cold that it's granular, it's crystalline. And pulling a sledge across it, they said, is not like pulling across snow where it just slides. It's more like pulling across sand. One of the guys was severely frostbitten. He had fallen several times and they think that he probably sustained a head injury and he was the first to die. Then the four remaining ones, well, they got a few hundred miles further you have to kind of steel yourself to read some of the descriptions of toes just turning black and feet turning black. And he could, he could scarcely walk. It would take them an hour and a half in the morning to get him into his boots because his feet were so bad. But they weren't strong enough to be able to put him on the sledge and carry him. That would have killed all of them. So he just stumbled along as best he could. And it got to a point where they camped one night They all thought that he would probably die in his sleep that night, but he didn't. He woke up the next morning. What Scott recorded in his journals said that Oates had told all of them, I'm going outside, I may be some time. They knew what he was doing, but they couldn't. It was truly between a rock and a hard place. And he walked out into the blizzard and intentionally sacrificed himself, hoping that the other three would get home. And the other three made it to within 11 miles of the next depot of food. Oh. Oh. But 11 miles in a blizzard is a long way to walk. It It is a long way. Yeah. They were struck by a blizzard that blew for nine days. 
Uh, and they were stuck there. They ran out of fuel. They ran out of food and they died. So and really, then, the only way we know all of this is because of the journals that they left. They left journals that Scott had written letters to the families of all of the men who went with him on that final polar expedition. So when they found the tent with the three bodies, he had letters to send to their wives and mothers about how brave they had been. He had written a message to the public. He had all of this stuff all taken care of. And the next spring, they went out and took a search party and were able to find those bodies. And they buried them there. They couldn't bring them back. Yeah, it's kind of like when you die on Everest, you're just left there because you're not coming out. You're just now a trail marker because they're not taking you down. Mm -hmm. This is also a big trigger warning on this book for people who are disturbed by animals dying Mm. because they had sled dogs and they had ponies. Mm. And part of the planning for this whole thing, because they knew the dogs could go further than the ponies could, the ponies could pull more. So they would use the ponies to take the biggest loads out, lay the first depots of supplies. And as they got into colder weather where the ponies could no longer function, they shot the ponies to feed the dogs. Not all the dogs survived, but a lot of them did. They knew the dogs couldn't go up the glacier. So when they got to the foot of the glacier, that's when the first party turned back to take the dogs back to the huts. Cherry Garrard wrote this 10 years after the expedition. There are some people who disagree with the, not with the accuracy of it, but with his interpretation, because he was very much a fan of Scott's. Talked about what a good man he was, how he, you know, did his best and figured everything out. I mean, the book is very, very British stiff upper lip. So it's a tribute to how much the human body and spirit can get used to. But today, there's a lot of doubt about whether Scott was really the best leader for that expedition. Mm. And there is questioning as to whether he didn't make some crucial mistakes. But it's a book that will make you absolutely amazed at what humans can endure. And that is The Worst Journey in the World by Apsley Cherry Garrard. I'll tell you one thing it's done for me. When I have to go out in the backyard now and it's 20 degrees out and I have to take the dog 20 feet out into the yard so he can do his business, I don't feel so bad about it anymore. (laughs) I guess we all will stop bitching about the cold now. (laughs) Never. (laughs) Well, I'm sure Megan will bring the room up. Um, Yes, this lovely winter theme I am reviewing Meet Me Under the Mistletoe by Jenny Bayliss. And you may remember that name because I reviewed one of her books last Christmas, which was The 12 Dates of Christmas. And when I saw that she had a new book coming out, I think I immediately texted in our chat and I was like, mine, mine. (laughs) Like I was the little bird from Nemo (laughs) because I was like, anybody, anybody? Okay, great. Mine. The seagull. Yeah, the seagull. Yes. (laughs) Mine, 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 mine. 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 Because <laughs> uh, I love her books, and she's super chatty with on us on Instagram, so it's always fun to review her books. So we have our character Eleanor Noel, and she goes by Nori, and she owns a little secondhand bookshop in London, and it's like a rare books. It's not just like a hey, everybody return your books here. She goes out and finds like rare editions and old books and antique books and resells them. And all of her best friends from high school are going to the equivalent of her hometown that has a castle. And they're spending a week at the castle because two of her friends are getting married. 
this book hit a lot of things for me because it kind of talks about boarding schools in England and it just made me happy. So she met all these friends when she went to the boarding school that's sort of connected to the castle. It's like castle adjacent. And she got there on scholarship because she's from the town. She would be what the Culver kids called a townie. And she went on scholarship. And so all of her friends are kind of snotty sometimes. Not all of them, not all the time. But they came from upper class aristocratic British families. And she came from like a working class family. And her dad's kind of salt to the earth kind of guy. So she feels a little bit like she lives in two worlds because she goes home and her dad's like, oh, you know, all those snobs up at the school, they don't know what a day work means. And then the kids at school are like, oh, these folks from the town. So if you've ever been to a private school or a boarding school, you know the towny school vibe (laughs) that you kind of get all the time in those two scenarios. So she's going back now to the castle and she's living there as a guest for the week instead of, you know, the the towny kid who goes there on occasion. And she very quickly runs into Isaac, who is the head gardener at the castle. And he was there. They're all about the same age. So he's friends with her brother because they're all townies, right? They all live in town together. And he doesn't have very fond memories of her friends because, you know, he was a local boy and they were the kids at the school. So there's a little bit of tension going back and forth. And she really starts to kind of like Isaac, of course, because it's a Christmas romance. (laughs) And they start to kind of get their friendship started. And she thinks that he threw a pile of poo at her (laughs) when they were in school together. And so she threw one back because what else do you do when someone throws horse shit at you (laughs) other than throw some back at them? And we actually come to find out who actually initiated the like shit throwing that went on for years when they were in school. And it's not who you think it is. (laughs) Uh, Her brother, not real happy happy that he thinks that she's going to hook up with his friend. He pretty much says, stay away from my sister and you stay away from my friend because I said so. And he gets real mad about it. And her and her brother never really get along. So every time they interact, you know, there's going to be a fight. Sometimes I think she picks the fight. Like he says something just very genuine and she'll be like, what? What's your problem, bro? (laughs) And I was like, he was trying to be nice. You're the one picking a fight this time. So there's a lot of banter back and forth. Her best friend, has sworn off true relationships for years and she just dates she's a really well-known lawyer in london and so she just dates who they call man barbies like she just always brings models with her places (laughs) and then we find out that the man barbie she brought for the wedding his name is dev is actually like really smart and she starts to fall for him so it's a lot of like funny things watching her be like no i'm not i don't like him And then as the book goes on, she goes, okay, I might like, like him. (laughs) It's just kind of cute. But it was interesting reading it as someone who went to a boarding school because they fall right back into their routine. As soon as they're back in the castle and back close to school, it's like no time has passed. And the significant others are sometimes sitting there going, what in the fuck are we sitting in on? Like, what, what was wrong with your group in high school? Like, what is happening now? There's a lot of drama. There's things like a spray tan goes awry for the wedding. So they have to figure out how to fix the spray tan and a deer eats the lettuce for the salad (laughs) so there's lots of little things that happen along the way they kind of move you through this week of her being at the castle and does she like isaac does she not like isaac this is negative megan blushes there's some fade to black where you kind of know what's happening it's negative megan blushes 
is zero to negative one. Cause you kind of get, you're like, okay, here we go. We're going to get some. And then it's like the next morning I woke up and I was like, not even a little bit of spice, but I don't think she gave us any spice in the 12 dates of Christmas either. I think she's just a very fade to black and that's fine too. Cause you don't really get any spice in Hallmark movies either. So, but it, it's fun. It's cute. Cause her best friend always goes to Nori's house for Christmas because her parents are always on some exotic vacation somewhere. And she brings Dev to meet Nori's family and Dev immediately introduces himself and is like, hi, I was adopted. I went to a state school and like told all these things about why he, even though he's gorgeous <laughs> and should look like he belongs in like the upper crust at echelon of like why her dad should like him because he's just an everyday guy. <laughs> and it was kind of funny. And her dad's like, right on, right this way. <laughs> and just kind of adopts her best friend's like-like friend <laughs> in their little routine while they're there. I really liked it. I thought it was a lot of fun. Of course, there's some drama that happens between Isaac and Nori, and you have to see how that resolves itself or if it resolves itself along the way. And I just love a good book set in boarding school with boarding schools as the background. Just hearing it all sounded so familiar because it talked about when they went back, they took a tour, you know, because you got to go back and reminisce. So they took a tour of the school and the headmistress is giving the tour and every hall they went in was named after one of her friends. And then she gets to Nori and she or she calls one of the significant others like she thinks that's Nori. And the significant other's like, no, I'm just a local. Like, I'm just along for the ride with my significant other that went here. And Nori's like, it's it's me. I, I'm the scholarship kid. And they kind of unpack some of the prejudice that the kids hold because I believe Isaac is from India. And then Katie, who was the administration lady, assumed was the scholarship kid. I'm thinking maybe from maybe African they never really say she she talks about being a scientist and like where she's going and so as soon as the girl's like oh and some people joined us on scholarship and they're like racist much so they call out the fact that there's some issues within the hierarchy of of the school and how they handle things and who they say things to so I thought that was really interesting and as always just love Jenny's books. They're so cute and so Christmassy. And I just want to go to an English small town and stay in a castle and fall in love with a gardener. I'm just saying. Sorry. Just I, just, it out there. I, I think I just broke my brain. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jenny, Jenny Bayless, if you need a best friend to accompany you to any of these places, you just give me a shout on Instagram. I will happily come over if you can find me some of these British men, but not, not guy though. No, you can keep him. He's a dick. <laughs> <laughs> through the whole book i don't want one like him i'll take one of dev if i am putting in orders <laughs> well it is the holidays <laughs> right Make you your list Santa. yeah, yeah <laughs> fitting in in the stocking might be interesting though yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe the stocking would be somewhere else we don't know <laughs> it could fit hard to him in a stocking gives new meaning to dick <laughs> in a book <laughs> right <laughs> Cock in a stocking. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. That's a beautiful visual, Keith. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so, yeah, if you want a super cute British Christmas read, I highly recommend Meet Me Under the Mistletoe by Jenny Bayliss. Now it's time to round it out with the most inappropriate Christmas book ever written. Yay! Woo! <laughs> or, well, I don't know if it's the most inappropriate, but it's got to be right I was going to say, I've read some porn about Santa. So. Well, this isn't porn. This is just wrong. Okay. Okay. So the book I read is called When Elves Attack, 
by Tim Dorsey. First of all, let me preface this by saying that I had to read the first book in the series of Surge A. Storms to kind of get a background on what the characters were all about before I dived into the Christmas book, which is which is technically number 14 in the chronological ever- order of books written about Surge Storms. He's the most hilarious serial killer known to man based on, you know, some of the things he does. He's always got good reason for doing them. So he's a compassionate serial killer. Kind of. Kind of a vigilante serial killer. Kind of, in a Florida man kind of way. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The book is basically a holiday version of a very hilarious set of characters. They show up at a mall. One of the first scenes takes place. He accidentally, I don't know if it's accidentally on purpose, runs into his friend in the mall. Well, his friend does not want to see him at all because Serge is trouble no matter where he goes. And he's on the run, of course, because, you know, he's killed a bunch of people. So he runs into his friend Jim at the mall. And Jim's wife, Martha, really hates Serge. And he's like, you've got to get away before my wife sees that you're here because I can't let her know that I'm still speaking to you. Well, in the meantime, Martha is over giving a, um, a mall cop the third degree because he's picking on kids for, you know, being raucous in the mall. So she's telling off this mall cop and then she comes back and tells her husband what an asshole this guy is. And Serge and his buddy Coleman, who just happened to be dressed like Christmas elves with the idea of doing some Christmas mischief, decide to kick the living shit out of the mall cop. Well, in the meantime, Martha is off in the office filing a complaint against the mall cop. So then, of course, Serge and his buddy Coleman tell the mall cop, whom they're kicking the shit out of, to stay away from... Jim and Martha. So, of course, the mall cop knows who turned him in. So, there's all kinds of, you know, stuff about those people that end up, you know, crossing paths later on in this absolutely laugh out loud, bizarrely inappropriate, I don't even know what, Florida man holiday romp. So, Serge being the kind of guy who really looks up to his friend Jim decides that he wants to be closer to him. So he rents the house across the street from him. <laughs> and he decides that because his buddy Jim is such a good family man, he's going to be a family man too. So he wants to have a good old family Christmas. So he goes and gets a Christmas tree that's so huge that they can't get it in the door. So they push it in as far as they can until it gets stuck. And they spend the rest of the book climbing under the Christmas tree to get into the house. And then they just decorate the tip that's inside the house. And he decides, well, we have to have women because, you know, we, we have no mothers to be part of our Christmas. So they call these two previous criminal accomplices from a previous book, which, you know, obviously I hadn't read the previous book. But these particular girls are seriously Florida we're sorry, Florida. Sorry, Florida. But, you know, this is, I didn't write this, but it really is, I mean, all kind of drugs and crazy, crazy. So city and country are their names. Obviously not the real names, but they're 
aliases. So you just sort of go along through this book and it gets weirder and weirder and weirder. And at one point, doing their vigilante justice, they commit a crime that will forever be burned into my mind when thinking of bizarre ways to murder someone. They hogtie this guy, who's a terrible person, take him into this hotel, and then Serge is bringing all these things in, and Coleman's like, well, what are you going to do? He goes, you'll see. Now just go out in the car and get me that frozen turkey. So then the next portion of it is, is the people that show up to clean up the crime scene, and basically he kills the guy by putting a frozen turkey into a deep fat fryer and blowing up the hotel room. I would say uh, that's a terrible plan. <laughs> well, obviously it was a great way to kill the guy because it got the job done. Uh, yeah. Have you <clears throat> not seen Oh, well that's, I feel like yeah. here in Oklahoma, people don't do that as often. <laughs> Tennessee, like every year it was like how many houses caught on fire when they yeah. deep fried a frozen yeah. turkey. So it, it was just a really absolutely the most inappropriate, fun, blackest of black comedy Christmas books that I never knew existed and enjoyed the hell out of reading. That was When Elves Attack by Tim Dorsey. I counted on you to be the other person who would not read a Christmas book. Sorry. You made me look like the outsider here. I'm sorry. <laughs> Hold on. There's a house phone ringing Somebody somewhere. get it. <laughs> I love like you said it like it's so weird that there's a house phone somewhere. I know. Who who the hell has a house phone anymore? And why is somebody calling it? I know. How weird is it that nobody talks on the phone anymore? Do you remember in the early 2000s, we spent hours personalizing every single ringtone mm -hmm. and now our phones are all on silent? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That is very true. Now it's rude to make a phone call without first texting to see if it's okay to call. Someone's going to find all these like text messages somewhere and they're going to be like, did the Egyptians make a resurgence? Yeah, like we've gone yeah. back to hieroglyphs. <laughs> what? Why is there an eggplant? Like what? Is <laughs> but, like they sure ate a lot of eggplant. Like I would love to like actually know an ancient Egyptian like time travel and have them tell us what their hieroglyphs actually meant. Because I feel like if someone looked at text messages today, they'd be like, man, they ate a lot of eggplant. And right. like that's and like your ghost is yelling down like that's not what it means. The, the eggplant like water spatters. They're like, yeah. oh, the eggplant sat. That's totally not no. what it means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some archaeologist like four thousand years from now is gonna be like, I've cracked the code. And we're gonna be like, nah, bro, you didn't. <laughs> it is kind of weird to think about though. <laughs> like, what are they gonna think in three, four thousand years? They won't know. They'll have lost the key by then. I'm sure nobody's like writing that shit down. Somebody somewhere is. So you but say. it's whether they can read it or not. We could decode the hieroglyphs a lot easier if the Library of Alexandria hadn't burned to the ground. What's the Library of Alexandria of, of this time? Everything so everybody ever put on a floppy disk. And right? now has <laughs> away in the back of a closet somewhere. That'll probably be the thing that gets decoded to, to crack the code of everything. If they can find anything to even read a floppy disk. Right. I mean, That's they'd true. have to find a pretty old computer. Yeah. Very They're going to be like, we don't know what this floppy thing is, but we think it's important. <laughs> like, okay, I found a computer. Now I just have to wait for these 1,537 updates to go before I can read it. <laughs> Updating. 
updating, updating. Please leave it complugged updating. in until completing. Updating. Restart your computer now. Please your updates. <laughs> and I think, on that note, very unchristmassy. That's going to do it for three, three book, book girls. girls. Can't get enough of three book girls? Check them out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Follow them on TikTok, YouTube, and check out their website at threebookgirls.com. And join the group Three Book Girls Tribe on Facebook. If you really love them, share the podcast with a friend or join them at one of their live events. Three Book Girls, a Steel Trap production.